When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And with help from Albertsons, it doesn't have to be the most stressful. Stop in for great deals on holiday favorites so you can stretch your budget and celebrate more. Pick up fresh, boneless, skinless chicken breasts or thighs, just $1.59 a pound when you buy a value pack of three pounds or more. And get General Mills cereal 10.7 to 13 ounces, selected varieties, $1.57 when you buy two. Tastier meals, sweeter deals, happier holidays. Albertsons, it's just better. Has Russell Westbrook been destroying Steph Curry? How has the three-point shot evolved over the last 20 years? And will the post-up ever become an efficient action again? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I am pleased to have uh, my buddy Brent coming on the show. We might all recognize his name, Brent Berry. Uh, I believe that you appear on NBA TV quite a bit and all sorts of other places. Uh, I don't know if you've been noticing on the, the last couple of days this whole Russell Westbrook uh, destroying Steph Curry thing. And um, I thought maybe you can, you can help me out a little bit because I've been taking so much flack uh, by simply just presenting the fact that, it, you know, Russell Westbrook, when he's going up against Steph Curry, isn't like destroying him like he shouldn't be on the court defensively. And I'm wondering if you can help me understand why this meme or this, this thing is going out there and everyone's screaming at me with bloody murder. Well, I think people are just looking at uh, what it is statistically uh, Russell has been able to do against uh, Steph. I mean, he has, not, he has not performed as poorly defensively as some might want to attribute uh, to, to things with regards to Golden State's defense. Uh, but the way that Oklahoma City has kind of taken a lot of the pulse of the Golden State Warriors away, uh, certainly fans can run with that kind of rhetoric. But it's not, it's not exactly, exactly true. Right. I mean, everyone's yelling at me for not including all the blow-bys that he was doing on Curry. And I had to reply to them saying, well, those don't exist. There wasn't any of these moments where he blew right by him and, like, got an assist on a dump off or kicked it out for three. You know, it was all very, like, good positional defense. Russ got his, his assists when he was on the perimeter, just making the pass, a good, you know, the smart pass. And then his shots, like, I edited a little piece together yesterday morning that was, you know, Steph held him to basically two for eight. And, um, you know, it's weird. Like, when you look at these comments, um, it's it's I guess it's the Thunder fans. Maybe they're just upset at me because I've been I've been you know brutal on Russ for a, a few years, or for a while now. Uh, do you see what I see as far as like you know from a coaching standpoint when you watch Russell Westbrook? It's exhilarating and it's frustrating and it's mind blowing and hair pulling all at the same time. I mean, do do you understand like where I come from a little bit on that end? No, of course. And I think uh, I'll just go back to the first point with regards to Russ. I think, um, especially for Oklahoma City fans or people who've watched the Oklahoma City team for, for many years, it's uh, about kind of this just-do mentality, especially because of what Golden State 
represents, and of course, the two-time MVP and Steph Curry, that what Russell has been able to do as the point guard of this team uh, and taking, like I mentioned, taking some of the spirit away from the Warriors, that everybody wants to have people jump back uh, from all of the criticism that Russ has got through the years about his late-game decision-making and about time and clock management and all those sort of things. You know, these kind of performances don't make up for those sort of things. And Russell would say the same thing. Russell has learned to become a better player this year. Is he a perfect player? By no means, no. In our league, we don't have any perfect players. But the perfect player you want to coach is the one that wants to improve. The one thing about Russell that he's been consistent at with this year is his talk about how much he wants to get his teammates involved and how much that's more of a priority of his game. Now, are there bad shots? Yes, everybody takes bad shots. Is Russ a victim of taking poor shots? Absolutely. Have they been bad in the fourth quarters? Yes, they have been bad in the fourth quarters. And has Russ been responsible for some of those? Yes, their entire team has responsibility in those. So you have people reacting to these sort of things because Russell Westbrook is what he is as a player, and those that love him will defend him to to any end with regards to how it is that he's playing. I think that Russell has really come a long way this season and is making strides in the right direction. He's 27 years old. He's been in the playoffs and been in deep series with his teammates, Kevin Durant and Serge Ibaka, and they know the type of opportunity that's in front of them right now, and they've been incredible ever since that game one loss to San Antonio. The team has been absolutely incredible. Okay, I mean, and that, that's all very fair. I mean, I, I don't want to take away from any of the amazing things that he can do. Um, I just feel like sometimes people might want to count uh, those amazing drives as, you know, more than two points or something. And that's just, you know, I, I, as a coach, I like consistency. And that's what I feel like I sure, but, missing. Uh, but we, we also need to say that, you know, every mistake that Russell makes isn't compounded and, and worse twice as many mistakes as any <laughs> other player. Okay. Right? I mean, there's, you got to... There's a happy medium between the two, and it would be hard. I'd be hard-pressed to, to say, and I, I know where you're coming from with regards to how it is you want your point card to handle and dictate game situations. Uh, Russell just kind of has never had a mold for us to wrap our heads around, um, but you have, to, you have to look at some of the positive things that he's doing, especially in this series, and say that uh, – there's been more good than bad with Russell uh, in the, in this postseason than we've seen in a long time. That, to me, tends to move the needle a little bit towards consistency for him. Okay. And you know what's funny? Cause like, and also, to me, I feel like he's playing his game. You know, he's doing, he's doing what we normally see him do, which is, you know, again, very good stuff. But to me, it feels like Donovan has tapped into almost to the point where he's like, okay, like Russ is going to be Russ, and it's at this point, 27 years old, we're not going to be able to do like what Popovich might have done with Tony Parker when he first got to the league, which we could talk about in a second. So I feel like Donovan has almost said, "Okay, fine, we are going to make sure we get even more out of guys like Stephen Adams and Dion Waiters, and even like maybe Kevin Durant on the defensive end." I feel like that might have been. I don't know if you've had that conversation with Coach Donovan or been around to see that, but that's what it feels like to me. Well, maybe there's been some uh, uh, just 
thought-provoking things for Billy as the season's going on and he's learned more and more about this team. I, I will tell you one of the more impressive things about uh, Billy Donovan that uh, that I had I was privy to see was last summer I was in Southern California and I, I took my boys up to UCLA men's gym, which I, I like to do because, uh, as we both know, you can walk in and there'll be 25 to 30 NBA players up there playing and getting ready for an NBA season. I used yeah. to do that myself. And so I walked uh, into onto campus and up into the men's gym, and in there were 11 members of the Oklahoma City Thunder basketball team. I was watching Nick Collison and Steven Adams and Serge Ibaka as big guys work on one end of the floor with Billy Donovan's new staff. I mean, who, quite frankly, were just introduced, you know, no more than four weeks prior to this. Uh, on the other end of the floor, I'm watching Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook uh, and Kyle Singler taking jump shots and working off of screens and this is in the middle of the summer. So I, I was incredibly impressed with the fact that Billy went right to work with not only getting his players to work, but also getting to work as to how his players were going to work. And I think that uh, that kind of early communication, you know, at some point as the season has gone on, has paid some dividends for them to get to this point. And um, he's done some impressive things in the playoffs to me with regards to having two incredibly different series. The one with San Antonio where he figured out the combination of Cantor and Adams being big against the Spurs was going to be beneficial to them. And then all of a sudden shifting to what it is, is has been problematic for Golden State, the long athletic smaller lineup um, that is, has caused some spacing issues and, uh, uh, some problems with the Warriors with the way they're switching their ball screens and not giving much room for Golden State to operate their offense. Yeah, I, it's, it, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around that notion as well because we're going through the film. We just did a big thing about you know why the, um, the, the small ball lineup of death isn't working, and man, it's not working. And when you look at a lot of the, this, the, the, the actual plays – uh, I kind of wonder, like, you know, Steph Curry gets an uh, inside ball screen from Bogut and who rolls to the basket. And I imagine, you know, 98% of the time he can just throw that pass to Bogut and they can get a score. And, yeah, hands, hands, and hands and legs and deflections and all of those things are, are playing a part. Obviously, so, but you know, because but I just, it's just weird to me only because these guys are pros. These guys won a title last year, and but you've been in it, and you you uh, actually are you know one of the, the the more athletic players that were on the floor at any one time. So it's like, does is that really at that at that level a thing where because you know certainly at the high school level we see it all the time. The kids just shrink because it's you know before the game starts, but. Can it? Does it really happen that way? Where all of a sudden they get they get so like discombobulated, even mentally. You see, like Draymond Green just throw the ball right into uh, Kevin Durant's arm. You know, is that really like? Is is that what it is? Is that the is it the uh, the athletic ability sort of intimidating intimidating them, or what, how does that work? No, I, I think it's funny that you you actually mentioned three guys for the Golden State Warriors who have really struggled in the series. And so I, I might go beyond just what you do in terms of physically how you're playing or what you're seeing with regards to tip passes or angles on screens or angles of attack and talk about over the course of a couple games here, games two, three, and four, specifically three and four in Oklahoma city with Steph and Draymond and Andrew Bogut, who by the way has got to stay on the floor for the Warriors. I mean, there's just no getting around it. I think, I think Steve alluded to the fact that he's got 13,056 minutes 
something ridiculous. <laughs> so that's screwing up their rotations. But those three guys are struggling, I think, in some way with uh, with their confidence. And so sometimes when that happens, you don't want to have the ball as much. You don't want to make uh, you don't want to hold on to the ball and be responsible for the decision of not getting off of it and then recircling out and having to make a play. So I believe that some of the things that happened to Golden State, especially in game four, was that it was almost hot potato. Like, I, I don't want this one. I'm going to give it to you. I, I don't need it here. I'm going to give it to you. Mm-hmm. And that's not the way typically we've seen Golden State play in a confident way where – if option one isn't open, I'm okay. I know we've got option two, three, and four. I might be stretching a little bit, but I think some of that plays into the confidence of the players that you're asking to do those things. And the Golden State Warriors have played with very little confidence in the past two games. Yeah, it's it's just amazing to me because it's like they've done so much. They've had a historic season, which might even be weighing on them. But in my mind, it's like, how can you not have – how could you not feel really good about what you're going to do? And, and by the way, I, what I also feel like it is is that it does require these guys to make some of their most, some of the better plays they can make on each individual play because the Thunder are long and they're athletic and man, are they they're like rabid how how aggressive yeah. they are, right? So I think right. No, I love that. I, yeah. And and the other part about it is is that the Golden State Warrior offense is always. I mean, as the season has gone on and what we've seen with them in terms of player and ball movement and off ball screening because they. They're one of the lowest, if not the lowest, pick-and-roll team in the league, is that it's often um, precision passing that makes the Golden State Warrior offense operate at its optimum levels. And so all of a sudden you have an Oklahoma City team where people keep referring to their length and athleticism coming at you. But what they've been able to also do is as much as you can establish a rhythm with your team on the offensive end, going back to plays and executing against different mismatches or where you feel you can have an advantage on the offensive end, what's happened to Oklahoma City is they've gotten into a defensive rhythm where they're covering the ground precisely. They're doing a great job of not overextending. They're doing a good job of collecting penetration. They're doing a good job of fighting over the screen and having Robertson or Foy in the game body up to Steph Curry and making sure that weak side cuts are unavailable as straight line cuts. We're going to bump you off your route. I mean, all these little details have given the Oklahoma City defense the confidence that they're in the right position to make it difficult for Golden State. So that part of their discipline under Donovan in the playoffs has been pretty fascinating to watch. I think the one part about Oklahoma City that people need to wrap their heads around is this was not like the 15th best team in the league coming into the playoffs. This was the number two offense in the league with two of the top seven offensive players in the game on the floor uh, for a good stretch of minutes for Billy Donovan that can create havoc at any time. It was the fact that their, their, I think they were 12th or 15th in defense, was not locked in and engaged. And the worry was for every team out there, knowing Oklahoma City's propensity to score the basketball was if they start to play for one another on the defensive end we're seeing the results of that kind of focus and that kind of concentration in the playoffs Uh, I can't agree with you more and and I even went so far as to say 
when Kevin Durant is doing what he's been doing the last couple of games, he is as good as Kawhi Leonard on defense. I, I, I don't think, I mean, I know it might, I don't think it's hyperbole. I mean, he's making plays like Kawhi would normally make. Well, I think the one thing that Kevin's done remarkably well is he's not having to match up with your typical three man. I mean, where his defensive uh, prowess has shown most in the series is the ability to play against Draymond Green, who typically never sees this kind of length at his position. He's always been able to bully around any matchup that he's had, and he's always been able to pass out of any kind of problematic situations that he's found himself in. KD has given him no breathing room whatsoever as him guarding uh, the, the power forward position and has done a remarkable job in terms of his rim protection, secondary bounce, and being in help side defense in ways where I just haven't seen that kind of focus from Kevin on a consistent basis as he's done in this series. So the motivation um, and his efforts are definitely there. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about that because as a player, and, you know, we're, we're the same age, you know, growing up, the notion of, you know, playing both sides of the floor equally hard was always, that was just sort of the, the given, at least as I recall, and I thought we had players that certainly did that back in the day. But now it, it feels like, What's cropped up is this notion that if he has to do so much work on the offensive end, then we couldn't possibly expect him to be, you know, above whatever the, you know, level that is on defense. And is that is am I making that up, or is that sort of what's kind of come into our consciousness in the recent years? Now, for great players that shouldn't come into their consciousness, for players that uh, want all the attention for being great scorers. Um, and don't want to help their team out, um, they certainly can subscribe to that as if my workload on this end is so great that I need you guys to help more than you normally would on the defensive end, which is a complete cop-out, really, to be honest with you. Um, one of the things that's really intricate about the pro game, though, as you get going, is how much, uh, because of uh, the size of guys, because of the limited spacing on the floor, is that the scheme of what it is that you def- do defensively can sometimes empower players who don't often uh, engage themselves defensively throughout every minute that they're on the floor. And most of the time you're talking about guys who you're referring to scoring uh, guards and scoring wings who feel like the offensive load is something that uh, takes away from how it is that they can contribute on the defensive end. So in the NBA, what I, what I believe really great coaches do is take a team that has offensive players in that regard and then build a defensive system around something that they can give to those sort of players to help them rely on what it is that's behind them, make sure that there's disciplined defensive rules so that, look, when you're in this position, you have to do this for us so that we can be in help side at all times. And if he doesn't do that, it's quite evident to not only the coaching staff but to the rest of the players that he genuinely isn't giving the effort. And when that starts to happen, your team starts to erode. That's not happened in Oklahoma City. That team has had tough luck with injuries. Uh, they made the coaching change with Billy coming in for Scott Brooks, who did a remarkable job with that team and never had the good fortune of health over the past few years after their finals appearance. And right now they're healthy, they're confident, they're motivated, and they've got their star players playing both ways in ways we just haven't seen. Can we talk a little bit about three-point shooting and, uh, and maybe your, your uh, experience uh, as a player? Sure. 
You know, because I was looking through this and I'm realizing that when you came in, you actually, you know, shot a lot of threes. Um, And we get this interesting discussion going on Twitter and with all the sorts of people who, you know, may or may not know uh, or have firsthand experience of what the game used to be. But like, here's my take. Like the I, I feel like. The, the 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 motion of shooting the basketball hasn't changed much since the '60s, and so you know certainly the ball handling and all that kind of crazy stuff and the athletic ability that's all off the charts now. But it seems to me that this is simply a matter of like the three point shooting. It's not like all of a sudden we can shoot better. It's just that we the coaching staffs or whoever decided to realize that it was a lot you know it was worth more when you shot it that way. I mean. So does sure. that, I, I'm not kind of babbling, but does that make sense? Is that, there's not even a question here, but the idea being that, you know, uh, all you guys from Eddie Johnson and all those guys from all that era behind could easily be in this era and, and killing it with three-point shooting, right? Well, I, think, I just think the idea obviously is over the past five seasons really looking, well, maybe, maybe thinking back to um, – how it was that, that Mike D'Antoni, I mean, he, he really will be one of those coaches and is spoken of in this way amongst the NBA circles as being one of the guys to help this evolution of basketball come this way with the way that the three-point shot uh, is valued and now searched out. You, you mentioned the, uh, the era, you know, through, through the late 80s and, and uh, through the 90s, the interesting thing about the three-point line was how it was that coaches ended up sort of accepting when and, and when and how the three-point shots within the confines of the offensive structure were, were going to present themselves. And most of the time, what you were having happen uh, through that era was the fact that you had a low-post presence, and that could be a guard. I play with Gary Payton, who we, who we often posted a lot um, uh, in, in his later Seattle days, it could be a guard player, but more often than not, it's a small forward or center that has, or power forward that has an advantage down on the block. And the only way that we're going to find three-point shots is really out of the double teams and out of full rotations where we're going to get teams scrambling around. And if we have a three-point shooter, and normally it was just like one on the floor at a time, mm-hmm. we're going to move the ball around and allow that, that player is going to end up shooting a three-point shot because the scramble out and the close out, they're not going to be able to cover that kind of distance because our post player is so dynamic that we're going to, we're going to live with that, the results of that shot. Well, that idea is so archaic in, in the way we, we see the game played nowadays. When we watch three-on-two fast breaks and basically running the lanes means running to the three-point line where we're stopping in first pass from a guy who – typically doesn't even come down and do the classic jump stop at the free throw line and find the guy <laughs> right. filling the lane. It's, you know, it's come down, cross over a guy here to one side of the floor and throw a little quick shovel left-handed pass drop off to a guy coming in for a three pointer. Um, so the, the emphasis is there. Teams have sought out multiple three point threats to fill out their roster. <laughs> um, even to the point where two of their starters may be a, uh, three-point shooters that are going to have between 300 and 400 attempts on any given season. And then the, the bench is going to come in possibly with one or two specialists to also search that out. So having a point guard to dribble drive and find opportunities and then get guys out of the three-point line is the way the game has moved along. And quite frankly, 
jealously. I, I would have loved to have for your course <laughs> doing that. It would have been a lot of fun. Now, I, when I was a sophomore in high school, they put the three-point line in in Chicago. Did you have a three-point line in high school? Uh, yeah, we did have a three-point line. I was in Northern California at Dallas South High School, and we had a three-point line, which was right up at the top of the key. Okay, so it was, like, it was the original 19-9. Um, and then did you take to it right away, or was this a thing that you developed later on? Well, it really wasn't that far a shot. So, I mean, you know, the top of the key was really that worrisome with regards to its distance. So, yeah, I enjoyed, I enjoyed trying my luck from behind there. Okay, because, you know, it's funny. We talk about, like, Larry Bird not being a great shooter because these guys will look back at the stats and see, like, for the most part, his percentage wasn't high. The thing with that was is that, like, simply then, nobody even practiced the three-point shot or understood how to get it, uh, really. And I think that that's what's so frustrating. Like, I don't know if you remember, but Isaiah Thomas, like, being at Chicago Stadium and when Isaiah Thomas got the ball swung to him and he was open, the entire arena would just gasp because they knew it was going in. He was that good of a shooter. But... You go back and they look at these these youngins will look at his three point percentage and just dismiss him, saying, "Oh, he's not a good three point shooter." And it's, I, I just don't understand. Can you can you verify that for well, me at least? <laughs> I'd be hard I'd be hard pressed to say that if uh, you know I I don't know about Isaiah. To be quite frankly, out of that range, I'm sure that he would have found a way to become uh, a pretty decent shooter from there. Obviously, his game was coming off a pick and roll and finding somebody defensively leaning the wrong way and just absolutely taking full advantage of him and roasting him, getting into the middle of the lane, pull up jump shots and finishing at the rim. But Larry, because he was such a great shooter, if he had had the three point line to practice and to take all those hours in the off season to become a devastating shooter from behind the three point line, he absolutely would have. It just was not a point of emphasis uh, during those later years of his career when he played. I, I went back to look at that incredible game when Dominique and Bird went at it in that game seven Atlanta Hawks against the Boston Celtics in 88 and there was a total of 14 three-pointers taken in that game Boston <laughs> took nine and and they hit three of nine Larry actually hit one late in that game which helped them seal that victory and uh, Atlanta took a grand total of five so um, yeah the game the game has changed and uh, the, the three-point shot is here and here to stay I'm glad that we're not, uh, you know, taking into consideration what somebody I think it was past week talked about with regards to a four-point shot. Let's let's leave the game how it is for a little bit. I hear you. Well, let's just wrap up. I have one question question to ask you about post up because you brought it up earlier. Was, you know, everyone wants to move away from the post up because it's inefficient. And my argument is the only reason why it's inefficient is because the people posting up now don't have the same skill and footwork that they used to. And like I, you know, I looked at like Kevin McHale. We don't have possession-based information for him, but the dude shot like you know close to sixty percent for most of those years. And I can guarantee you that eighty-five or ninety percent of his shots were post-ups. So, right. and every team had a guy like Akeem or David Robinson, and uh, you know across the board, Ewing, um, you know. I would have to imagine, wouldn't you agree, that if you would have gotten the post uh, points per possession information on post-ups back then, it would be at least 1.0 and, and certainly a viable option? No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, at some point, uh, hopefully in the next uh, four to five years, we'll have some of the bigs who are being developed at some level realize that uh, – in order to separate yourself from what it is that everyone else is doing, um, that, that maybe spending some of your time in your off season when you know you're going to be a bigger player, have an opportunity to uh, 
to dominate the game because of your physicality, that maybe your skills should be in better served by becoming something unique to the game. And maybe they move in a direction where they're better off playing down on the low block. And, you know, we bring some players back down there to create some offense because anytime we get, anytime we get somebody like that, it allows any kind of coach now brand new creativity to start offensive schemes with a player that can dominate at his position. And that's really what you want to do. So maybe there will be uh, a trend at some point for coaches at a young age to teach some of these as the new uh, game can represent for your team as a viable option of another part of your team's attack. And not just pigeonhole a guy to say, you do that and do that only. And shooter guy, you do that and do that only. The more skill, the better, which means our coaches will use those skills and we'll see a much better brand of basketball. Uh, that sounds like a heaven to me. Well, <laughs> Brent, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show uh, and chop it up with me. I hope we can do this again and talk more about what's happening because it's always a fascinating conversation. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate the time and keep up the, uh, the editing work. You need to make sure you get your rest. <laughs> I will try. And thank you so much. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Brent? I'm in. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win 25 grand. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants. Participating stores.